This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Panera Bread. Mr. Coley, our good friends at Panera uh, have, you know, we're, we're, you, I'm, I'm at least a sucker for one of these, you know, made up National Donut Day, National Meatloaf Day, whatever it is. Uh, but Panera Bread has taken the liberty of designating January 17th, uh, next Wednesday, I believe, as National Ditch Your New Year's Resolution Day. Uh, and are adding. Did you did you have to wait till the seventeenth, Joe, before you you ditched yours? Or I, I'm unfamiliar with really what a New Year's resolution is, Franklin. Um, you know, the only thing I I commit to is instead of dry January is my annual monsoon January. Um, but um, uh, no, so Panera Bread is uh, rolling out two new sourdough melts to its hot sandwich lineup: bacon avocado melt and the Southwest chicken melt the bacon avocado melt applewood smoked bacon avocado smoked gouda everything bagel seasoning and chipotle chipotle aiello how do you pronounce that aiello aiello um aioli aioli i think it is aioli there you go that's it aioli tongue twister on early morning and uh the southwest chicken melt pulled chicken smoked gouda red onion my favorite i love me some red onion cilantro and again the aioli uh both layered on the classic country rustic sourdough. Franklin, that's got my attention. Now you got my attention. All you got to say is bacon and avocado, and I'm I'm in. That's it. Well, I'm a sourdough um, freak. I love sourdough. I love their sourdough bread bowls. Um, I'm a, I'm a big big fan of the whole program. Yeah, yeah. While you're busting New Year's resolutions, don't be afraid to grab that kitchen sink cookie in Panera. It is, uh, it weighs about a pound and a quarter um, <laughs> and has, as it as the name would suggest, everything good in it. So get you one of those while you're in there. Yeah, good stuff, man. So I'm circling next Wednesday, our local Panera, get me some new hot sandwich melts. Uh, looking forward to that. And on that very yummy note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go super side. Mr. Vice President speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch coming up on the podcast. After years of regulatory and legal wrangling, the Labor Department released its long-awaited rule on the legal treatment of independent contractors. So what does this mean for operators leveraging outside resources for janitorial services, maintenance, and delivery drivers? We'll discuss. And Mike Wally, the Vice President of State Affairs and Grassroots Advocacy for the National Restaurant Association, stops by the pod to discuss his group's priorities for the 2024 legislative sessions and what operators should prepare for. We'll talk about those issues and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Kefauver with my Align Public Strategies partner, Mr. Franklin Coley. Mr. Coley, it's a big week, big week in Washington, D.C. after... A couple years of procedural wrangling, legal wrangling, lawsuit wrangling, uh, the Department of Labor finally issued its final rule uh, defining independent contractor standards under the FLSA. Long time coming. Obviously, the Trump administration passed in t- late in the last week or two of the, of the administration in January of 2021, their standard. The Biden people went about kind of undoing it, putting it back to the previous Obama standard, court action, 
court said they couldn't do it that way. They had to start a whole new rulemaking process. It's been a long, most of the, almost the entirety of the Biden administration working on this. It's finally here. What do you think, my friend? Well, you, first off, Jay, let's rewind the, the, the tapes a little, get in the memory banks. We oftentimes when we talk about the joint employer issue, we're kind of co-mingling NLRB and, and labor department. NLRBs, you know, that is happening in its own silo, although it, it overlaps with this. Um, Congress today will be voting on uh, a CRA to basically kneecap the NLRB joint employer rule. So that that's happening over over there. What we're talking about today's Labor Department. And Joe, if you remember, this was David Weil's thing back in the Obama era. So this is not union organizing. This is wage and hour. That's the bucket we're in here at the Labor Department. So this is independent contractor law vis-a-vis wage and hour. And some would argue that this is more impactful and significant to brands where, you know, these wage and hour violations repeated over many months or years, many days or nights in a row, many locations, this can add up very quickly. And, you know, this can give, uh, whether it's regulators or, you know, labor groups that are coming in or the trial bar for that example, this can give them a lot of leverage over a brand and this can get very problematic for a brand very quickly. So that's the area of law we're in right here, Joe, with the FLSA. This is essentially a dust off of that David Wow Obama era year. One of the better articles is uh, in Politico Pro, which means it'll be on Politico's regular site here in the next couple of days. DOL releases independent contractor rule echoing Obama era standard. So, you know, we're, you know, you can, there's plenty of legal briefs on this. Just Google around if you want to look that, get into the details of it. But the bottom line is the Obama era standard and this new Biden era standard, which essentially overturned decades of precedent and now in the Obama era and now is overturning the Trump standard. It basically, has a wider, I would call kind of fuzzier economic realities test or totality of circumstances test. And so this kind of gives more leeway to regulators to look at all kinds of factors as to how much control the prime employer is uh, exerting over the subcontractor. And is this really, you know, are they controlling you know, entry and exit to the building? Are they controlling uh, wages? Are they controlling other things? And so these totality of circumstances will determine if they are, in fact, in an employer, you know, joint employer in an employment relationship and then own the hook for everything that entails. The standard that the employer, here's the other buzzword that you need to know, the standard that the employer community likes is an ABC test standard which is more clearly defined um, and doesn't go into all of these, you know, exercise or unexercised control that the prime contractor can exert over the subcontractor that may trigger kind of a traditional employment relationship. But the ABC test, isn't that normally kind of in the, on, on the joint employer issue, not so much the independent contractor issue, but um, I, you know, it, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't even try to play a lawyer on TV, so I, I don't know. It's, in effect, it's the same, you know, in effect, it's the same thing. So, I mean, it, it's, are we dealing with two separate companies 
or are we dealing with what should be considered a more traditional employment relationship, but they're trying to dodge by, by establishing two separate companies or, a, you know, set up a contractor that's skirting those traditional employment relationships. So, you know, it's, it's essential. It's more or less, obviously, the wording in the legal terms matter here, but it's more or less the same thing. And what the employer community has called for under the independent contractor rule and, you know, similarly in, in, in some circumstances, the joint employer is this ABC test. You know, so that is what the employer community has advocated for in front of the Labor Department here. And to your point, Joe, in other circumstances and, you know, a number of states have ABC test for in this space. It is not something that is it's obviously for decades pre Obama years and then under Trump administration. That was the standard. So it's not it's something that is relatively commonplace, I guess, is the point I'm making. So so let me ask you kind of real world, you know, and, and I'm just thinking out loud here, but it struck me as I was reading this, you know, to the extent of what operational disruption is there really de facto, i.e., you know, I'm let's say I'm Bloomin' Brands or I'm Inspire, Darden or whoever it may be, Brinker. Um, you know, this Trump standard goes in in the last few minutes of, of the administration. You know, every corporate council knows that, you know, the, the Biden people will immediately try to freeze it, undo it, uh, which they immediately did, um, began that process. And, and, and knowing that ultimately they would be, you know, some level of successful going back to the existing, you know, the, the previous standard. So I'm wondering if inside companies, like the ones I just named or hundred others, did the, the, the did they ever go to the Trump standard anyway? Is this any kind of disruption in the business? Because a it came super late in the game and was almost all immediately subject to litigation. And did any did the Outbacks and the Dardens of the world change a darn thing anyway? So is this new rule much of a disruption? All our well informed ahead of the curve companies certainly have steered clear and are operating far above board and won't be impacted by any of these changes, Joe. But the the little local independent that instead of hiring Jimmy to come in and clean the restaurant every night as a W-2 employee, instead they they have Jimmy as a sole supporter or a, have him set up an LLC as an independent contractor and they control his access, they dictate terms of employment instead of paying, you know, whatever, $15 an hour plus the required benefits or whatever and paying taxes on that. They're paying him what amounts to $8 an hour if you calculate it out. And so Jimmy, who, you know, has a Mary Maid's franchise or whatever and is is going in there and is basically an employee and is being treated like an employee, has all the hallmarks of acting as an employee but is being paid as an independent contractor to, as the labor department would seek and, and destroy and, and say, this is just a dodge from paying Jimmy's, you know, what he is owed is he should be a W-2 employee. That's, that's the potential pitfall for some operators that, um, you know, may have independent contractors. And, and I think restaurants are probably – 
you know, this probably matters more in industries like the construction industry or, or some other industries where independent contractors are really an a, a important part of the business model. And you have lots of business to business type relationships. So I think there's a lot more examples in other industries than there are within a restaurant box. But th- those examples do exist. And that's where the labor department is going to be picking. Now, David Weil certainly interpreted this as the franchise or franchisee relationship hit this trigger too. And, you know, he specifically, he was looking at a couple chains, but he was really looking at the C-Store industry and some of the, the C-Store franchisee locations. And some C-Store franchisees stepped forward and said, hey, I'm a manager. I, I, they have so many guardrails and they tell me what I can do and what I can't do. I don't have, I'm not an independent owner operator. I'm an, I'm an underpaid manager for this corporate chain. And, uh, you know, so while at least un, under his era, um, did go after that franchisee franchisor relationship. And that did bleed into the restaurant a little bit, but C stores were definitely more of a target. Jessica Lumen will see if she has that same sort of ire towards the franchise industry that WOW had. But these are potential pitfalls for us, Joe, as an industry. They're not as numerous as some of the other industries, but they're there. I think it was excellent, uh, excellent roundup of that issue, Mr. Coley. Um, thank you for that. Um, I, I will say on, on this, you know, on a lot of issues, I, but this one comes to mind because it's, you know, we're talking about it. I thought our uh, leaders in D.C. did an excellent job uh, trying to impact this process as much as possible, but really communicating on it. I think the, the communication out of the NRA in particular, Aaron Frazier and Jordan and Sean, that crew, uh, was really uh, top drawer. So hat tip uh, to the NRA folks on that one. Uh, Mr. Coley, I think that kind of sums up, you know, this, this thing is in effect now. We, we move on. Uh, any last words on? Independent contractors, I think the lesson here is, you know, if you're certainly a smaller company and you're contracting, you know, maids or you know, lawn services or, you know, delivery drivers, better be better be boned up and, 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 and lawyered up and making sure you're on solid footing, correct? You're going to get legal guidance on this. It's going to evolve as the cases, you know, develop and we see how this is interpreted and applied. Stepping out of the legal department and into our space, if you're in the public affairs side of the business, understand that this can couple with, you know, supply chain issues and union organizing in the box. And all of a sudden you've got a reputational nightmare. This could be one part of kind of a multi-part effort to go after a brand and demonstrate they're a bad actor across the board. And so I think from the public affairs side, from the reputational side, this could be this could be an issue that could trip up brands, and that's why we we're kind of paying attention to it. So we'll have to see how it's interpreted. The legal guys will look at that, but just know they're going to be head hunting on this stuff. Well, last week uh, our listeners heard Mr. Coley and I talk about twenty twenty four and some broad strokes and the environment and what's going on out there vis a vis the upcoming election and some of the larger forces out there. Uh, and this week, we want to do a kind of more intentional, deeper dive on some of the issue sets themselves. And there's nobody better to do that with than our old buddy, Mike Watley from the National Restaurant Association, the Vice President of State Affairs and Grassroots Advocacy and frequent contributor to the Working Lunch Podcast. Mike, great to have you back. Yeah, thanks for having me a little bit late, but a happy new year to you and all of your listeners. 
All right, well, Mike, appreciate you joining us. Let's get right to it. Um, the biggest set of issues that you and your team will be facing at a 50-state level has got to be in the wage space, whether it's the efforts in some places to eliminate the tip credit, whether it's copycat fast acts, whether it's the pending ballot initiatives. So let's jump into it. Talk to me about where the national conversation is right now and where is that conversation on one fair wages and their allies to eliminate tip credit. Yeah, great question. And you know, 2024, to your point, is an election year, which really provides two overarching themes to everything at the state and local level. First, you have a lot of politicians who are up for election this year and uh, general elections, but also their primaries. So on both the progressive side and the conservative side, uh, there's a strong incentive for them to move as close to their bases as possible in the early months of the year. And what does that mean for, for our listeners? It means on both sides, you're going to see uh, legislation that is, is either very progressive or, or very conservative, which can have impacts for our industry on, on both sides. And you're going to see a lot of that sped up. An election year is a very condensed year when it comes to state and local policy. So while in certain states in a non-election year, you might see legislation introduced and kind of slow walked and uh, comes to a head later in the session. In certain states, there's a primary kind of in the middle of session, which speeds a lot of this up and makes it a much more condensed year, which means our team and, and the industry's advocacy efforts will be quite busy in you know the early couple of months of this cycle. But it also means ballot initiatives. And we're looking at potentially seeing a handful of ballot initiatives um, impact in the industry that could be on state ballots uh, going into the fall. Uh, I don't believe at this point any of them have actually been officially certified for the ballot, but some of them on the tip credit side, some of them on the overall minimum wage side are, are, are in the process of signature gathering, verification, et cetera. So lots happening. To answer your question specifically on, on one fair wage, uh, we were in the first week of the year. We've seen a couple of bill introductions in a, in a handful of of states. There are several ballot initiatives that are they're pending out there on one fair wage. One in Michigan, one in Massachusetts, one in Ohio, one in Arizona uh, that we're aware of. So you know, definitely going to be a, a busy year. But it's it, it's up to us to really talk about why these are bad for employees, why these are bad for customers, why these are bad for operators, and. Uh, We'll be out there with our state restaurant association partners telling that message and pushing back. Mike, we spent a lot of time uh, last year, and Mr. Coley, jump in here at any, any point, but we spent a lot of time last year talking about fast act copycats. And we were quite sure we would have bet money that we would have seen rollouts in New York, Illinois, New Jersey, kind of all the usual suspects, Washington, Oregon. We didn't see as much as we anticipated. Uh, we like to think that the the effort the industry put together in California uh, put a damper on the enthusiasm to go down that road. Do you do you see Fast Act or Fast Act like proposals rolling out in twenty twenty four against the backdrop of the election? I think you're you're spot on in terms of last year coming out of. Uh, the California Fast Act, we envisioned seeing, you know, copycat bills in a handful of jurisdictions. And you saw a little bit out there. There was a bill that was introduced in Virginia. It really didn't, didn't go very far. 
um, and a couple of others, the local level that were, were talked about, but there wasn't that level of action that we really anticipated. Uh, two reasons for that, I think, personally. One uh, was California. You know, we spent a lot, we as an industry spent a lot of our time and attention and effort in California last year um, on the heels of the FAST Act, first dealing with Assembly Bill 1228, which was the joint employer bill um, for the industry, but then the the negotiation and the ultimate um, kind of compromise that was reached to address the FAST Act, to remove the referendum, to uh, remove the majority of the challenging components of the FAST Act, but then also ultimately having a, a very steep wage increase with that compromise that will be a big challenge for the industry. Um, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. That will be a big challenge and be a will cost jobs, will cost uh, restaurant locations in California. But yes. a lot of attention was spent by unions, by industry on California, um, which I think took up a lot of the time for, for elsewhere. And also, it was just a new and novel concept. That I'm not sure it caught on in other markets quite yet. Um, we're looking at it closely this year. You know, we're we're ready as an industry, um, working with with others, with our partners at the International Franchise Association, to tell the story of why these unelected boards are a bad idea. You know, we are seeing some local activity, lots of uh, chatter in Minneapolis, as there has been for 18 months at this point about what that could look like. Uh, a bill introduction in, in Montgomery County that we may see some activity on um, this month. New York has a, a couple of bills that touch on this space, but we're being vigilant. But we as an industry, we're, we're educating our state association partners. Um, the Save Local Restaurants Coalition is out there telling the story of the industry. So we'll see. This could be a, certainly be a busier year, but we'll be there and ready to defend the, the industry, um, however uh, this um, come out. There's no doubt the way that the industry responded in California stunted the spread. I, I have no doubt about that. Um, I do think we'll see a pop up, Mike, uh, in in 2024. I do think it will be more limited than, you know, if we had done a poorer job in California. The other thing to watch there, too, and it doesn't always kind of hit our tripwires, is there we have seen the issue advance in other sectors. And I do expect to see more of that in 2024. And, you know, particularly the conversation around the ride share space as well, but but other sectors um, also. And so, you know, legislators, you know, if they get comfortable with it in one sector. It makes it much easier for them to, you know, expand it to QSRs or hotels or whatever, you know, in the next turn. So that's part of that kind of broader conversation that, uh that we'll be watching in 2024 too, outside of the industry, because it will have impacts on the industry down the road. And I think the industry has a, a, an opportunity to really reach out to the rest of the business community and, and explain the issue because of all the work that we as an industry did in California to explain why this is bad for other sectors. You know, we've done, we've done polling, others have done polling, just, the concept of an unelected board that is making decisions for an industry or even a sub-segment of an industry, the general population doesn't get it. They don't understand why that's needed. They look at it as, 
I elect my politician. My politician is supposed to make these tough decisions. Why are they, for lack of a better phrase, outsourcing that decision to an unelected board? There's a lot of opportunity to, to message that, to really talk about that, because it doesn't resonate with voters. They don't, they don't understand why this is happening, especially when it's targeting one segment of one industry. So there's a lot of opportunity for us as an industry to be a thought leader in this space, which I think we're, at least I hope we're doing a good job of right now in terms of when these ideas pop up, when there's even chatter about these ideas in a market, getting in there quickly, educating the business community on why it's bad and why, you know, perhaps your particular industry isn't part of the current proposal, but let's be honest, you're next. You should get involved now. I think one of the other things that struck me, Mike, is that, um, you know, often, our, and especially in our industry, you know, we're a, a hospitality or, or happy-go-lucky folks. We tend not to kind of um, bloody noses in the press as a general rule with, with brands or associations. But it's been interesting in California, so many stories of, oh, price hikes or uh getting rid of delivery drivers and, and or, or, you know, operational changes that they're, that the companies are laying right at the feet of the FAST Act. They're publicly blaming the FAST Act for getting rid of uh, delivery drivers and, and outsourcing that or price increases or shutting this down or closing this restaurant. I've really never seen the industry and, and players in the industry be that aggressive in laying all that right on the foot, right at the doorstep of the FAST Act which has got to be helpful in terms of our narrative in other states, other jurisdictions. I, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the FAST Act deal that was ultimately worked out, it, it, it's not perfect for anyone by any means. You know, the, the minimum wage increase for the industry makes it the highest minimum wage in the country. That is incredibly difficult. That is incredibly tough. That is going to result in higher prices, locations closing, uh, employees losing their jobs, but it has to be considered in the larger context of all the other existential threats the industry was facing with the FAST Act, with the Industrial Welfare Commission, with the Joint Employer Bill, with all these other things. And so I think it's critical for us as an industry to say what happened in California was California specific. And while what was ultimately worked out in the context of everything else was the best possible deal that could be reached. It's not a deal that should go elsewhere. It's not a deal that is portable to other markets because you're seeing job loss, you're seeing locations close, and you're seeing price inflation. So that's very much the what we're saying when lawmakers say, hey, what just happened in California? We explain it in that context of this is not something to move to whatever East Coast jurisdiction this could be. I mean, we, we need to re rename it, you know, Retag it, rephrase it, do what political people do, and just call it the the Gig Worker Creation Act, or the you know, just just rename it with with, with an eye toward what the ultimate outcome of, the, of what the ultimate impacts of the bill are. So I I just think that the the, the, the the media cycle has given us a lot to work with as we go into these other 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 states. Um, and, and, and Joe, on that, you know, jumping back to the one fair wage piece for a second, an impact. We now have several months of data in D.C. in terms of what's happening in D.C. And, you know, as a trade association that has a location in D.C. and we work and, and love D.C. and love the dining scene, it is a bleak outlook right now 
it, it is it is bad what is happening in D.C. to the industry. Um, you know, you're seeing customers are dining out in the suburbs more often, which is taking tax money away from D.C. You're seeing restaurants close. We're seeing one restaurant close almost a week in D.C. And these are like high profile restaurants. And so much like we're seeing the impact of the Fast Act in California, and that's a big theme for 2024, another big theme for 2024 is going to be the cautionary tale of what happened in D.C. and why that should not move elsewhere. And we're already seeing pushback. Look at Prince George's County, a suburb of D.C., was looking at tip credit elimination last fall, was potentially looking to fast track it. Tipped employees came out, operators came out and said, we don't want this. Please don't do this. And the council tabled it indefinitely. So I think a huge theme you're going to see in 2024 is, you know, cautionary tale of what happened in D.C. and, and what happened in Chicago of this shouldn't be replicated in other markets. I don't remember. Um, and there was some great press this week in Maryland about operators and servers opposing uh, um it really talking about it at the state level, but opposing um, the elimination of the tip uh, credit. But um, I don't remember this many elimination tip credit elimination measures on the ballot in one cycle. Um, we've had a lot of minimum wage measures on the ballot in different cycles, particularly presidential cycles, and some of those have included the phase out of of the tip credit. So, but I don't remember this many. And remind me, Mike, um, how many of these is Massachusetts a standalone tip credit elimination? Are some of these other standalone tip credit eliminations or are they embedded in a minimum wage increase? Can you give us a quick rundown of that? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So Massachusetts is a standalone um, tip credit elimination. Massachusetts is still phasing in its, its minimum wage deal. So like there, there's... There's been minimum wage activity in Massachusetts in the past that has not included um, this issue. That one has not qualified for the ballot um, yet. It's in the process. The Ohio one is a it's a joint one. It's tip credit elimination plus an increase to fifteen dollars um, an hour. And then you've got Arizona, you've got Michigan. So you've kind of got a mix uh, of various elements. But it's really critical for the industry to to explain the tipped employees don't want tip credit elimination. You know, you see the research of employees saying, you know, the system works. We don't want this to change. But again, back to DC, we hadn't had a jurisdiction truly eliminate the tip credit in over 20 years until DC. DC is that real life, for lack of a better phrase, experiment in terms of what happens when you do this. And it's bad. You know, it's just the, the data is showing this is not something that other markets should look at. So it's incumbent on us to, to tell that story and to really use it as a cautionary tale. I think looking at 2024 and looking at the, the big fights and the big issues and what will have the impact coming out of 2024, I think Massachusetts stands apart for the, the reasons we, we just discussed. Um, I think D.C. did was an important battleground as well. I think Chicago is an important battleground. And I, I think that the Maryland battlegrounds are even more important than Chicago to stunt the momentum. But when we look at Massachusetts, um, you know, we have a look, I could put anything 
embedded in a minimum wage increase in the ballot and probably get it over the finish line. You know, voters overwhelmingly support minimum wage increases. It's a bottom line. We've seen it for the past 10 years. You can put it in the ballot in South Dakota, Nebraska, Missouri, and you can get a minimum wage increase over the finish line. So sneaking a, you know, tip credit phase out or elimination into that, you know, that we want to win those and, and those are tough fights for us, but like we're, we're fighting a really uphill battle there. Having tip credit elimination standalone in the ballot is a different dynamic. Um, it will, you know, if, if one fair wage is successful, then that will create a whole bunch of issues for us where they will be able to go to funders and say, we can win as a standalone measure and then go back to all these states that have already passed minimum wage increases on the ballot. So um, I don't want to go too far off, but as we're looking at the 2024 landscape, the issues and jurisdictions that I, that matter, I think for me, that one stands a little bit apart for that reason. I think it's incumbent on us as an industry to explain the differences between tip credit and minimum wage. And, and while, you know, the media likes to put the two together, they are different and explaining why they're different and explaining why tipped employees don't want this to change. They don't want it to go away. Um, in jurisdictions like Prince George's County, you're seeing tipped employees come out and say, I make this amount of money. It is well above the minimum wage. Please don't make this go away. And that, that's on us as an industry to really explain it. The tip credit's complicated. Um, we have to be out there talking about it and explaining how it is different than the minimum wage. And I think throughout all the kind of mega trends that we need to leverage in the argument. I mean, yesterday's in the Wall Street Journal, uh, there was an article uh, entitled Offices Around America Hit a New Vacancy Record. And what's happening in downtowns, it's not going to be uh, fixed because we are now entrenched with remote work. I'm, we're doing these podcasts right now, and not you're not in your office. I'm not in my office. Franklin's not in his office. We we've we become entrenched in this. And downtown Orlando, for example, there's nothing but empty restaurants downtown. There's tons of empty restaurant space downtown uh, Orlando and downtown and all over the country. My point being. You want to really exacerbate that situation, eliminating the tip credit is a great way to do it. And if I can just add- You want some more empty restaurants downtown? Eliminate the tip credit. If I can just add one other element, it's crime and what's happening in in cities. The House Small Business Committee is actually holding a hearing this week on crime and challenges. And there's a restaurateur from Oregon, uh, from Elmer's, who's testifying about the impact it's had on his business in in Oregon. And that's just one example of many. You combine office vacancies with, with crime in certain markets, with higher labor costs. It, you know, restaurants are in the best of times, a, a tight margin business, four to six percent. But you add in those factors and it just becomes unsustainable. And you're going to see more closings. You're going to see um, reduced staff. And it's just, it's not good for anybody. Mike, we touched on it earlier about the ballot initiatives. The big ones, Ohio, potentially Michigan, Massachusetts. Any other states we want to add to that list that people need to be watching? Arizona as well um, also has a a potential unfair wage 
uh, ballot initiative out there. And you know, the ballot initiative process is a long process. So these are the ones that are out there that are announced. Others could be announced. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot of steps to ultimately qualify for the ballot. So we're, we're watching uh, any state that allows a ballot initiative just to, to see what's happening. And, you know, uh, stating the obvious, there's only really one way to defeat a ballot initiative. And that is to write large checks. It is, it is certainly a money game. And so I know that the National Restaurant Association is going to be called on to help support uh, the, the, the feat of those ballot initiatives in those states. Uh, I know companies are going to be leaned on heavily. Uh, so people ought to be budgeting and preparing that if they want to adequately defend themselves in some big restaurant states like Ohio and Arizona, they're going to have to dig deep and, and pay for that. It's a, it's, it's a pay-to-play kind of game. Uh, it's, it's too bad. Mr. Coley, anything you want to add to uh, this 2024 labor wage roundup before we move on to other issues? No, get to work, Mike. What the hell are you doing here talking to us? <laughs> Mike, that's, when you're, it's me a busy year, that's working, for sure. When you're not working on labor issues and these wage issues, what are some of the other issues you and your team will be kind of playing with this year at the state level? Sure. You know, as we describe it, anything that touches the four walls of a restaurant plus the, the virtual walls and the delivery walls, all of that fun stuff, we're there, we're engaged as are our 52 state restaurant associations. But, you know, a couple of trends that we, we've talked about before, you know, in the environmental space, uh, packaging, waste, what that looks like. You know, you see state level action on that. You see you see local level action on that. So definitely. Um, an issue that, that we're watching. Um, uh, another issue, nutrition issues. We, we've seen jurisdictions like New York City, like Philadelphia, try to go even farther as it relates to menu labeling. Um, New York last year was considering uh, a bill in the city to expand their warning labels to include added sugars. Uh, fortunately, the, the council reconsidered and said that while the bill would go forward, it wouldn't go into effect until the FDA had actually issued some guidance on this. So, you know, just an issue that we're watching in terms of expanded menu labeling, what that looks like in the nutrition space. But kind of on the other side of the business, you know, we've talked about it before, alcohol to go and what has changed with alcohol law since the pandemic Certainly going to see less activity on that than we did in, in 20 or 21 or even 22, but we're still seeing activity on it. There was a bill introduced just this week in Indi Indiana that would create cocktails to go and also make it permanent. Indiana is a state that has not had cocktails to go previously, so it's, it's a great opportunity. There are a number of states where cocktails to go is temporary right now that we're hoping to make it permanent down the road, but you know... Every year, we, we, we look out there and look at new and pending policies at the local level, and every year we're surprised by new issues. So always trying to you know, keep our, our, our ear to the ground in terms of what new ideas could be out there, either on the, the, the helpful side for the industry or, or the, the less than helpful side um, in certain regards. Well, um, I think you know we've said it before and we'll say it again. I think the industry is in a great situation having you as its point person at the state level. I know we have some real good state associations. You help make them better, you're, you and your team. And uh, we appreciate all you do for the industry. And we appreciate you uh, always spending time with us and getting us straight here on Working Lunch. Franklin, any last parting shots while we have the esteemed 
Mr. Mike Watley with us? I will reserve uh, all my shots for the remainder of 2024. <laughs> it'll, it'll, it'll be busy. So uh, hopefully be back on here talking about some, some wins for the industry, but thanks for having me. You know, it's a collective effort. So for all of your listeners, if you are not members of the national association, please join. If you're not members of your state association, please join. We need that collective action. It's critical this year, um, probably more than ever. So really get engaged however you can. And that's the last word, Michael. We appreciate it. Once again, Mike Watley, National Restaurant Association. Thanks for uh, helping lay out 2024 for us. Well, Mr. Coley, it's, uh, as I said um, when we were with Mike, it's we're very fortunate that he is on point for us. What do you, what do you take of his comments regarding Fast Act, tip credit elimination, ballot initiatives, and all the other stuff? Yeah, when you look across the states, um, with all the state legislatures coming in and you look at the ballot, those are the uh, probably defining issues for the industry, um, certainly at the at the state level. You know, his federal counterparts are focused on activity out of the NLRB and, and the Labor Department, which also trickles down a little bit into the state level. But I think as an industry, obviously joint employer, which Sean Kennedy was on, I think last week, right? Talking about, am I getting that right? Well, we're talking about junk. We, we did we did mention joint employer, obviously, but we were focused on the junk fee FTC stuff. That's right. Um, some of those federal issues, you know, I, I think joint employer and the the rules and regs around union organizing at the federal level, activity out of NLRB and the Labor Department um, will be defining issues in 2024 as well. That will have some state impacts with captive audience, right to work, et cetera, but. Uh, most of the activity is going to be probably uh, probably at the federal level. And while we're talking about the federal level, you know, we'll have probably a new overtime rule coming out of labor department. That also will be important in the wage space and we'll have, well, the lack of it. These ballot initiatives have implications in terms of overtime requirements at the state level um, and what you have to pay out as well. But, you know, obviously a federal standard applies to everyone across the country. So, um, those are other things I'd put in the list, Joe, uh, in addition to everything we, we talked about with Mike. Yeah, the one, the one thing I didn't get into with Mike, we talked, you know, you touched briefly on the alcohol stuff. I am, I'm just surprised that the entrenched powers that be haven't pushed back harder on some of the gains the industry got with regard to delivery and cocktails to go. And uh, I guess they just, the public's gotten, the public likes it. It's gotten entrenched and there's, no putting that genie back in the bottle, I guess, in a meaningful way. So, well, they're losing their minds in Indiana right now. So, you know, yeah. they're 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 pushing back on the stuff that's coming up now. But yeah, rolling back the stuff that was passed three years ago, you know, it's it's just it's harder to undo stuff than it is to kill it in in real time. And I don't know that everyone knew. I don't know that everyone knew at the time if it would what the actual impact would be of these, you know, popular things. So, man, the liquor guys, you know, and I know it's different in every state, but liquor sales just across the board are down as younger drinkers move, well, don't drink or move towards, you know, wine or seltzers or um CBD, whatever the hell. Uh those those kitties are drinking these days, but um you know, so I, I I think it's tough for the traditional package guys. I know it's different every state, but your traditional package 
store folks uh, are, are facing a lot of pressures, I think, right now. And they, I expect any of these disruptors that come up now and moving forward will get that forceful pushback, Joe. Yeah, should be should be should be interesting to watch. It's uh, you know the alcohol system has been the way it is for about a hundred years, and it's not going to go away quietly. So uh, probably more in that space. But uh, like like I say, it's going to be a busy busy year, my friend. Yeah, the last I'll throw one last thing at you. Mike hit on it, the EPR space. We're going to see more work in that. We talked about in the pod last week, Starbucks and reusable cups. That you can we're going to be dealing with this issue for the next 20 years. So that is and it's going to have ebbs and flows where it you know, where it's super hot and there's a lot of jurisdictions considering stuff and then times downtimes. I feel like we're in a trough right now. We're in a little bit of a downtime, but that doesn't mean that six, 12 months from now, uh, we couldn't have an explosion. The certainly the California climate disclosure rule is a total game changer. And there's other states that could follow that. We still have that pending at the federal level. I'd put that in the same bucket as the EPR. You know, it's um, managing our, our footprint, our our footprint outside of the stores, our impact to the environment and to the community and all that kind of stuff. So um, I expect more kind of activity in that space. I don't know that 2024, that'll be one of the top three issues, but easily could. It's going to be something we wrestle with for the, again, decades from now. Well, I'll I'll tell you who does, who does think it's in their top set of their issue portfolio and that's the manufacturers. It's interesting if you talk to companies, you know, in the manufacturing sector, not the retail sector like we are, but upstream in the supply chain, they are in state houses all the time on EPR. They they are very focused on EPR. And it worries me that we're not because nine times out of 10, you know, as everybody's pointing the finger, who owns the, who owns the responsibility and the onus, you know, the, the, the manufacturers and the retailers are going to be on, on different pages. Uh, you know, aligned against each other. And the other guys are working hard on those issues in state houses and we're not. And that kind of worries me that, you know, when these proposals get, get rolled out, uh, they're going to be 90% set in stone and the manufacturing crew will have written most of it at the much well, the chagrin of the restaurants. And, and just this week, we had a new coalition form, the CO2 Solutions Coalition, which is basically all of our supply chain, all the industry supply chain has formed a new industry group that's going to, you know, tackle and be the tip of the spear um, for, you know, like the California disclosure law. And uh, we ain't really part of it. The Meat Institute, the Turkey Federation, the pork producers, the Beer Association, the Beer Institute, Beverage Dispensing Equipment, American Beverage Association, Compressed Gas Association. That's like our entire supply chain, basically. Um, so if the manufacturers of the of the single use items in our in our store are setting it on the setting the rules and regs on the manufacturing side for that, and then our supply chain is setting all the rules, we're we're just kind of at the mercy of all these other actors. So right. um, we can't afford to just now, it's appropriate for them to be a part of those conversations, if not lead those conversations, but we need to have a seat at that table. We need to be a partner in those conversations because these are our business partners um, and we shouldn't be seeding that space. So 
those are issues we gotta, you know, we got so much. Certainly, Mike outlined your your kind of your top issues, um, but you can't take your your eye totally off the ball on some of these other issues as well. It never ends, my man. It never ends. That's why I have no hair. It uh, it's it's uh, it just the list continues and continues and continues. So. Um, Onward and upward, my friend, and on to our issue agenda in 2024. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, starting with A at the top of the alphabet, Alaska. Man, there is a, uh, a big ballot initiative coming down the pike. Talks about minimum wage increases, talks about Paid leave talks about captive audience. What in the world's going on up up in Alaska? What was the what was the three headed monster in Godzilla? The Hydra. The, uh, the, well done, Joe. Well done. Oh, Hydra is like a Greek mythology yeah, yeah, thing. Greek mythology. Yeah, yeah. What was the what was the name? It has a name? Maybe you can Google that while I'm I'm going along here. Alaska passed a minimum wage ballot initiative. I want to say like a couple years like ago, 2012 uh, or something. Way 2014, somewhere back in there. It's like like we discussed in the Watley segment. There's there's an appetite about anywhere for standalone minimum wage bad, valid measures, and it's not uncommon to try to sneak a little a little something in there. Here they go sneaking a lot of stuff. So, fifteen dollar an hour by twenty twenty seven inflation thereafter, paid sick leave mandate, and a prohibition on captive audience meetings. The triple threat, Joe. That is. Uh, I mean, you know, if you if you're gonna go, you might as well go all out. You know, there's no reason to there's no reason to hold back and kind of you know short it. So, labor advocates are just they're gonna throw it all in the ballot um, and try to get it all done at one time. So that's it's impressive, I have to say. Clearly, Alaska does not have a single subject rule. So yeah, uh, yeah. So of course, Alaska has no tip credit. Uh, Alaska's minimum wage now is in the 11s. This were to pass, it'd be fifteen bucks by twenty twenty seven. Uh, a bunch of paid uh, sick leave, fifty six hours accrued a year, I think, some big number, and uh, no captive audience uh, meetings, captive audience meeting ban. So they got the signatures at a very low threshold of signatures. Obviously, a very sparsely populated state. They were well in advance of the signatures. So we'll see if that makes it onto the ballot. Uh, it's either the primary date or the general election date to be determined by the division of elections up there. Franklin, one of my favorite, favorite recreational pastimes is watching hypocrisy unravel in front of me. It's delicious. It's kind of like you with primary elections and the campaign stuff. I love, I love a good bowl of hypocrisy stew. And this week, my friend, Governor Gavin Newsom, who is whether you love him or hate him, a very astute politician, uh, made a grand, grand show of signing that $25 minimum wage bill for healthcare workers, beating his chest, waving the flag. Then it comes implementation, implementation time. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's pump the brakes on this a little bit. Now that the cameras are turned off, now that the tension's elsewhere, he's trying to kind of undo that deal because wait for it. The economic reality of what it would cost the state uh, has dawned on them. And now they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. There are economic implications for these minimum wage increases. You have the floor, my friend. I'm sorry. I was looking up the three-headed monster from Godzilla while you were talking that whole time. That's great. It is. Uh, 
Guy Adora, um, probably mispronouncing that, but debuted in the 1964 uh, Godzilla film. No, Joe, I, I love it too. It tickles my tickles my funny bone um, to watch all this uh, this unfold. Yes, this impacts the state budget and basically tanks it. So Gavin Newsom exited the stage from debating Ron DeSantis on the blue state, red state, and quietly whispered to everyone to wave it off. We need to delay this thing until June, I think is what they're shooting for. No, it's basically. Supposed to go, it's supposed to go in, in, in effect in June. And now he's trying to kick the can. It is indefinitely. Yeah. An indefinite wave off. I love it. It's so delicious. I, I, I just, I just, I just want to roll around in it. It's so, it's so fantastic. The hip-hop. Well, and he vetoed, if you'll remember, he vetoed the Teamsters, one of their priority items, which was to uh, offer unemployment benefits to striking workers because that would have blown another big hole in the budget. So he already had torpedoed one union priority, I guess two major union priorities. That would have been the Teamsters. This is the SEIUs. He couldn't get away with This is also like a, a negotiated deal between the healthcare industry and the SEIU. So there were like a lot of, he would have had to kick over a lot of Apple cards so anyway. He rolls this out in his budget proposal. Like, he doesn't even announce it. He just, he just sticks it quietly in the budget proposal. The other, the other cherry on top of the hypocrisy Sunday is that he, he's investigating getting state government healthcare workers exempted from the bill. <laughs> healthcare workers for Kaiser, yeah, you're covered. But my healthcare workers, nah, not so much. He's, I mean, it's, just, it's I love it. I love it so much. I can't get enough of it. Good luck on that because that's a lot of the SEIU's membership, the home healthcare workers that are paid by the state. Ah, um, so delicious. Ah, yeah. It's made my week. All right. Franklin, switching gears to my beloved home state of Maryland, crab cakes and football. Uh, no surprise, I think it's the second day of session, uh, legislation introduced to eliminate tip credit. Uh, yep. And the industry, uh, I think, has had kind of a trial run in some of the local jurisdictions in Maryland and is going to be well prepared to fight this. It made it deep into the finish, towards the finish line last year, I think ultimately the governor kind of threw shade on it. And and so we're in a good spot here. You can't take anything for granted. We are, you know, it's an election year and, you know, that, you know, crazy things happen and they're clearly keeping the pressure on. So we've got to show up and make our arguments. Uh, but this will be an ongoing conversation in the state of Maryland Joe, how long is the session there? I can't remember off the top of my oh, head. Oh, it's pretty quick. I, th- I think it's, it's, it's 90 days max. I think it's 90 days. For our purposes and for this issue, that's probably a good thing. So we've got to we, we got to be on our A game for ninety days. Bat this thing down. Hopefully, get it you know in the gutter in the first half of session, so we don't have to deal with it you know in a substantial way the second half. But um, yeah, it's go time in Maryland, Joe. For for those that have never participated in the, in the Maryland legislative session, they have this really cool tradition that goes back to colonial times. Um, where they actually start the session kind of in a, in a candlelight evening ceremonial process at, at night, um, and then the kind of the next day that the legislative stuff starts for real. So it's kind of a kind of a, a, a cool tradition. Um, is there is there forced binge drinking and paddling involved in that, Joe, or is it? Um, there's no no paddling that I remember, um, but yes, there is a 
a libation or two. And actually, the Restaurant Association of Maryland has done a very nice job almost forever. And I assume it still goes on. The uh, opening night reception was always a taste of Maryland. You know, the restaurants came nice. into Annapolis. So, um, you know, I think we're in good hands there. Obviously, Marshall and um, his team have demonstrated in both Montgomery and, and Prince George's County, they're going to come to that fight armed and ready to go. Um, so uh, they've created some good, some good tailwinds for themselves on, on this particular issue. Mr. Coley, um, talk about an issue with very little tailwind at the federal level. We've been talking about federal, uh, federal legislation on paid leave forever. And obviously states have not waited around for the, for the Congress to act and done their own thing. But uh, little, little ray of, uh, I don't want to say, you know, I don't want to be pejorative and say hope or, uh, but it seems like the door is ajar right now for some movement on the issue on Capitol Hill. I would push back on that a little bit, Joe. I think that there has been constant, small, super small, incremental advancement on the issue. Um, and this is another sign of that. You know, there just has to be this kind of moment where there's these weird dynamics in place for a paid leave, some sort of paid leave program to get passed by Congress. It's like there has to be all these weird dynamics. Everyone's for taking care of dreamers, you know, in the immigration debate. There's just the dynamics never seem to line up to get it over the finish line. I feel like paid leaves in a similar situation where, you know, going back to the Trump era, the bipartisan criminal justice reform, which, you know, had bipartisan consensus for a long time, but the dynamics didn't line up until that one moment. Infrastructure, you know, had bipartisan support for a long time, but the dynamics didn't line up. I feel like this is something's going to happen one day when the dynamics line up. But anyway, bipartisan group of House lawmakers, they released essentially a pilot program for paid family leave. It reminds me, Joe, of what the bipartisan proposal in the Northeast where the different states I think it was Vermont, Maine, and New Hampshire, but don't quote me on that. But the different states were looking at pulling their their paid leave programs together to get enough, to get the pool big enough to make the numbers work. And this would essentially set up a pilot program for states to set up paid leave programs as well as association style pooling plans for paid leave insurance at small businesses. So it, it has echoes to use a, an earlier an earlier headline, it has echoes of what was pursued at the state level in a, in a bipartisan manner previously. And of course, that I think all fell apart. But anyway, that's what we're, we've got going on, Joe. Nothing like there, there's nothing going to happen tomorrow in this, but the conversation just kind of keeps percolating among uh, policy experts. Well, I think that the, 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 the political shift is, you know, you, we're, we're talking about private insurance and the insurance marketplace and basically having paid leave insurance, like you have health insurance or car insurance or whatever kind of stuff, you would have a paid leave insurance that would either be paid by the employer as a, as a benefit or by the employee for themselves, blah, blah, blah. But what, what you do now is you have a new product offering for the insurance companies. You bring that lobby into this conversation, uh, which has a lot of heat, especially on the red team side of the aisle. And so now you have the behemoth insurance companies lobbying for this type of approach to a plan, both at the federal and state level. So it kind of changes the, the political landscape and the blue-red dynamics on the issue. Insurance companies uh, have a pretty darn good track record of getting what they want in legislative assemblies. So 
uh, we'll see how this plays out. Uh, and we're going to talk about it. Frankly, we can go right to uh, the state of Kentucky where there's a, a, a bill right on cue uh, that would basically do the same thing at the state level. Uh, yeah, that, that's it, Joe. It would give private and public employers option to allow employees to purchase paid family leave insurance. And it advanced, it's advanced through committee and is on its way to that, the House floor. So, yeah, it's, you know, to your point. Now, on the flip side, going over to Colorado, Joe, we've got all these blue states that have stood up these these paid leave programs that are, you know, with, essentially it's a, it's a portable benefit, right? But these paid leave programs that are managed by the state that you pay into, just like you'd pay into Social Security, and then you can... Uh, you don't access it at retirement. You can access it, you know, whenever. Um, so, you know, different models, different approaches. The consensus is we need paid family leave. And there's been this interesting coalition right and left that has kind of come together uh, on this issue, kind of social conservatives, religious conservatives through the, you know, pro-family lens and uh, and obviously the left labor advocates advocating. So, Start to see movement, Joe. Yeah, interesting. In Kentucky, this this kind of was endorsed by the by the Republican leadership there, and that's why you see it, it flew through committee unanimously already on the House floor. So, be interesting to see how that. Uh, I think we know how it's going to play out. Interesting to see how Bashir, uh, the Democratic governor, but you know, conservative, moderate, centrist Democratic governor of Kentucky reacts to that. Um, Franklin, New York. Uh, New York is first in many things, and they're looking uh, to be the first ever to expand paid medical leave to prenatal doctor visits. I think going back to the Watley segment in the paid leave bucket, I think this is the the frontier for 2024 and beyond is the expansion of paid leave into all these little pet things. And, you know, prenatal care is probably super important. I'm not, you know, I don't want to diminish that. Um, and, and, but, you know, you see other jurisdictions pursuing like vaca- paid vacation time and you see jurisdictions bereavement and you see jurisdictions pursuing, um, you know, expansion for, you know, taking care of relatives or all these little provisions where different lobbies coalesce and say, you know what, we need paid leave expanded to cover that. And so, I think these blue jurisdictions that have had paid sick leave or paid family leave on the books, I think that the next waves are dealing with all these these lists of issues where there's constituencies that can advocate for them. In this case, uh, 40 hours of paid leave expanded for prenatal care, including doctor's appointments. It has not come up yet before the legislature, but you could see how this would be something that is going to probably appeal to lawmakers, we'll have to watch and see if it makes it through the process this go around. Switching to labor policy, Mr. Coley, Q. Roger Daltrey, meet the new boss, same as the old boss, Julie Sue, renominated for another term, or another, another run to continue her stretches, acting Secretary of Labor. This is outrageous. I mean, it has become, in this era we live in now, kind of common, but, you know, House Republicans certainly think this should not be allowed. This is not a good precedent. I don't like this. I, I understand why it's happening. But yeah, she's basically serving in this position without confirmation. And 
obviously the Biden administration, it tends to have her serve in this position without confirmation indefinitely. This is not like this has happened before. This happened with some high level appointments, I think, in the Trump administration. I feel like it happened a little bit in the Obama administration, but like they were. This is becoming more and more commonplace anyway. It's it's and, you know, the Tommy Tuberville holding back the appointments of on the military side over issues. This is not good for the wheels of government generally, whether you agree or disagree with particular agencies. This is just not a good precedent across the board. I don't like it, Joe, but Julie Sue renominated. Uh, will probably continue serving as a labor secretary without getting confirmed by Congress for the remainder of, you know, the Biden first term, at least. Yeah, it's, it's not a good look. I mean, you know, uh, if they get the scalp. They got David Wiles scalp. You know, they get Jessica Lumen. If they get this scalp, they're not going to approve of anybody that Biden puts up. And we have, you know, so it's, it's, it's just such a disappointing game up there. It makes me, makes me a little crazy. Uh, Franklin, you had mentioned it earlier, but uh, today, January 12th, as we speak, uh, in a few hours, uh, United States House of Representatives will vote on House Joint Resolution 98, basically invoking the uh, Congressional Review Act on the joint employer rule passed by the NLRB. What's going on? Well, you just, you just, you just nailed it there, Joe. Um, that's it. We assume um, it'll pass, correct? Yeah, I mean, but there's, listen, there's going to be a lot of this and there's going to be a lot of lawsuits and you've got to just, you got to keep operating like the Labor Department and the NRB's rules are the law of the land until they're not. So just know we're going to have, uh, we're going to have a lot of this over the coming, well, and we're in an election year. So, you know, we've just, if you're in the Hill, you're like, well, Biden may not get reelected. We're going to tie this thing up in knots as much as we can. And, you know, that's, so that's what's going on here. Um, this, this is just more good in the industry groups, by the way, for, for doing this. And this is part of the game that will be played out over the coming months, coming year, as we see what the ultimate dispensation is of this, this rule. Switching gears to Amazon Franklin, uh, this week, the leadership of Amazon received a letter uh, from 24 United States senators uh, criticizing them for their approach to how they've been handling unions and their delivery drivers and uh, so forth. You know, it's probably the 875th letter they've gotten on the subject, usually from Bernie Sanders and others. What was, there was this, this letter was a little different, Mr. Coley. How was this letter different than what we've been used to? Yeah, we had some repubs cross the aisle on this, uh, Mr. Kefoffer. Some of your more populist kind of voices, all of which have aspirations to be president or something else one day. Um, you've got Josh Hawley out of uh, Missouri. You got Mr. J.D. Vance out of Ohio. Um, so these are these are two headline seeking uh, figures, populist. Economic populist, I would I would characterize them in that way, and we've talked about this before. Senator Rubio's teed off on Amazon. Others have teed off on Amazon and have kind of gone into the yeah let let the labor let the unions organize them. You know, forget Jeff Bezos. So this is kind of the 
this is the danger we talk about for some brands where they they get this this populist coalition of Democrats and Republicans coming after them because they have problems with X, Y, and Z with uh, personalities connected to the brand or the the brand themselves. So, you know, interestingly, Joe, we didn't talk about it that much in the independent DOL, independent contractor rule, but a lot of the tech companies are saying, we're not impacted by this business as usual. Woohoo. I don't know how much of that is uh, kind of bluffing, but Amazon would you would think that Amazon and delivery drivers would be caught up in the independent contractor rule that just came out of the Labor Department. Uh, but most of uh, those platforms are saying, nope, we're in the free and clear. So it'll be interesting to see how that kind of plays out in this space as well. And our last little item, Franklin, uh, under the guise of who doesn't like a new coalition? Who doesn't who doesn't want to have a coalition? Uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, CO2 Solutions Coalition has been launched. And a lot of the members are important to restaurant supply chains. I feel like this may be the worst coalition name ever. It is um, awful. It really is a terrible name. I, I can't decide if it's so awful that it's good, like, because you'll never forget it, you know, or if it's so awful, awful. I'm, the jury's out. It's awful. Let's be clear. But I, there may be some upside. It may be so awful that there's upside in it that you'll never you'll never forget it. But um, we talked about in the earlier segment. It's basically all our, our supply chain: compressed gas association, beverage association, dispensing equipment, gas welding distributors, the Meat Institute, Turkey Federation, pork producers, brewers. Brew Institute. I mean, we're missing we're missing a couple there, but that that's a lot of stuff that that's a lot of food in our in our outfits, and that's a lot of equipment in our outfits, and a lot of drink in our outfits. So that that covers a lot of dang bases. Uh, we probably need to elbow up and and be a participant in this conversation. This certainly and obviously we talked about it earlier is this type of coordinating entity, whether it's a fancy new coalition with an awful title or not, was needed given what's happening at the SEC and more importantly, the new disclosure requirements in California. Now, those only apply to public companies, but we all know where the, the trend line is is heading on this and um, the supplier community plays a big role in that. So uh, this is one that Hopefully we can invite them on the podcast, Joe, to defend their uh, their their coalition name and, and tell us all about the coalition. <laughs> can you imagine? Uh, First question. What a terrible name. What, who, what were you thinking? Obviously, this is all we, we say all that in loving jest um, for our good friends over at the CO2 Solutions Coalition. And we hope that you can you can get past that and come join us in the podcast and tell us about the coalition and what you're up to. Well, yeah, we'll we'll make an effort because I I think it's an important space, and you're right. I, I think uh, the, the the processors, you know, we talked about this on EPR, another conversation. The, the manufacturers and processors is at table, and sometimes when the consumer facing retail side isn't at that table, uh, they live to regret it. So uh, just interesting to see how that's kind of kind of playing out. All right, well that's a long a scorecard for you this week. Obviously, we're in January. It's go time at state level. Uh, and so we'll have another scorecard for you next week. Well, Mr. Coley, another week, another pod. And as we leave you this week, 
I know there's a little uh, little item on your political calendar that uh, you had circled for a, a good bit of time here. The uh, first in the nation little shindig in Iowa. What, what's happening in uh, in the middle of the country out there? It's go time, baby. It's, this is it. This is it. So this is the fourth Republican presidential primary contest, Joe, in the in in my since I came of age. And I participated in, in most of them. I was a delegate uh, to the national convention and I was on the ground um, as a staffer in a lot of these. So it, it brings back, I get an adrenaline boost just thinking about it. Like it, it, it really gets me fired up. So anyway, next week, I can't wait. I'm going to have the TV on and be watching it all. It's going to be, when's going to be something else. When did the caucuses officially start? Is it on Tuesday? Yeah, and it's supposed to be super, super cold. This polar vortex yeah. is going to sweep down, and so doesn't that, doesn't uh, that help Mr. Trump even more? Because aren't his followers more fervent know. than the other followers? I think I, think I don't he know. Probably has a, um, an edge on the fervency scale relative. I did see that uh, old Vivek got his car snowy iced, caught in a ditch the other night, and had to cancel some some events because of weather. It literally hit. That's awesome. Yeah. That's, yeah. It's pure Iowa. Um, so we'll see, you know, a lot of <clears throat> DeSantis has a lot of campaign infrastructure, you know, he's down if Haley overperforms. So here, here, here are the, the two things I'll be looking for. If Trump clears 50%, I think the narrative coming out of there is he's unstoppable because the knock has always been that he gets a plurality, not a majority, you know? So I think, that's one thing to look for. Does he clear 50%? Does he win with 42%? Um, he's polling right around 50%, but who knows, you know. But if he comes in at 42%, I think it persists that narrative that he can't win a majority, that he's a, he when you know, he has this, this ceiling that he can't get through. Um, the other, the other big piece is the, obviously the DeSantis-Haley thing, but, but Haley, the expectations have been so low in Iowa that, if she overperforms um, and then gets a big boost going into New Hampshire, then maybe we have a contest. Maybe. Um, so if Haley overperforms in Iowa, gets a big boost where she's doing well in New Hampshire and Trump struggles and independents can obviously vote in that primary. Um, and there's no dim primary to speak of. So independents are going to vote in the Republican primary. Um, maybe she notches a win in New Hampshire. Then the third contest, we're in South Carolina all of a sudden. And maybe Haley pulls out a miracle there and then maybe we have a race. I mean, keep in mind, that's only three primaries of, you know, however many. But uh, if Trump wins with 54 percent and then goes to New Hampshire and wins commandingly, then I think this thing's done. Done. So I mean, done in January. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, again, I don't I don't follow Harley at all. But my sense is that, um, you know, H Haley can survive you know, not winning and, and kind of flatlining unless DeSantis really overperforms and appears to have any viability. I think he's got to really overperform or that guy has seen his last check that the money will yeah. dry completely. You know, to the extent that he has already seen his last check, but that'll be over. He, he's got to really over, overperform. The bogey is biggest on him of anybody. He's got to overperform to survive. And, you know, I think that's right. And expectations are pretty high for him in in Iowa. And he's 
his campaign has said that they moved to Iowa. Yeah. He's done the full Grassley. Yeah. This is, you know, um, he's, he's, a, so, he's, a, he's a guy that averages 15 points a night. And it's got to have a 25 point night to, to win, you know, to, to, to I, I think even, yeah, I think even potentially more than that, but uh, you know, but yeah, he's got a, he's got to, he's got to come in a super strong second. He's got to be basically nipping at Trump's heels. And the problem, the challenge for him, I think, is that he's not in a great spot in New Hampshire. So, well, the other problem is how many people really like him. So that's the challenge. Even coming out of of Iowa with a lot of momentum, it really, he then has to super overperform in New Hampshire and then get down to South Carolina. It's a narrower path, I think, for him. You can see a path for Haley. Yeah, you um, really kind of can. You can see every there, – there's a reason why every – because she hasn't – again, I'm way out over my skis. Uh, I don't follow this like you do. But she hasn't ever really tried to project herself as a mini Trump, as the, the, the Trump heir apparent. You know, DeSantis started out that way. Like he he tried to be as mini Trump as possible until he had to find his own space, and they, you know they started their fracas, you know, a year and a half ago. So my point being, there there's a much easier path for her to wrap her arms around the the anti-Trumpers than there is for DeSantis. I, in my humble out in left field opinion. The flip side of that and 538 discuss this in like last week's podcast is um, the flip side of that is if DeSantis goes out, then Nikki Haley doesn't necessarily pick up all of DeSantis's votes because yeah, DeSantis votes may revert back to Trump. 100%. That, that, um, that solidifies my point. Like he's, he's more like aligned himself, at least in the beginning with Trump than Haley ever has. I think momentum... Haley's banking on, on momentum. You can see a scenario where she may, she overperforms in Iowa. Governor Sununu is supporting her in, in New Hampshire, and so there's infrastructure there. Independence in New Hampshire. Let's let's say Chris Christie endorses her. You know, coming out of Iowa and the way to New Hampshire, he ha- he actually has a support base in New Hampshire, and you know, a couple crazy dominoes fall, and like all of a sudden we we may have a we may have a race. But I mean, you can see a scenario where like some weird things happen and you have a race. Anyway, I could talk all day and night on this, um, but it all starts next week, Joe. Um, it'll be fun to watch. Exciting, exciting times. I know this is this is your Super Bowl. We love this stuff, man. So uh, we'll have plenty to report on next week. And until then, stay safe, stay informed, and we'll talk to you then. 